Welcome to the Hope Chapel Sermon Podcast. We hope that you are encouraged by this teaching from God's Word. We currently are meeting again for in-person services and would love to have you join us if you feel comfortable. Our in-person service times are Saturday at 5 p.m. and Sunday at 9 or 11 a.m. You can also tune into our live stream on Sundays at 9 and 11 by going to hopechapel.org forward slash live. And for those of you who are visiting with us here at Hope Chapel this Christmas Eve, my name is Mike Nazarian. I'm one of the teaching pastors here at the church, and it's going to be my privilege to minister to you from God's Word this evening. This evening, I'm going to be speaking to you from Matthew chapter 1, verses 18 through 25. So church, if you would, please stand with me now for the reading of Scripture. Matthew records these words. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold... An angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, And they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. Church, this is the word of the Lord. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. As I was preparing for this Christmas Eve time together, it occurred to me that we live in an age of ambiguity and gray areas. Many people will attend Christian churches tonight, and all they will get are blurry lines and vague speech. I just want to say up front that I recognize that all of you have set aside your precious time to come here tonight, and I respect you enough to be clear with you. I don't want to waste your time this Christmas Eve. So I want to tell you up front that tonight I will preach to you the true Christian gospel. That is what you can expect here this evening. The Puritan minister Richard Baxter centuries ago said, I preach as a dying man to dying men. And that is what I aim to do this Christmas Eve together. Over the past few weeks, I've seen a lot of Santa Claus, Frosty the Snowman, a little bit of Rudolph, the red-nosed reindeer, and more recently, Apple's adaptation of Charles Dickens' Scrooge with Will Ferrell and Ryan Reynolds. And... I have to confess that 
as I've been thinking and praying and meditating over the past few weeks, I've repeatedly asked myself that same question that Charlie Brown asked himself in the Charlie Brown Christmas when he was discouraged by the commercialization of Christmas. The plot builds uh, to a point of climax in that film. And as many of us know, there's this moment where Charlie Brown cries out, isn't there anyone who knows what Christmas is all about? Linus responds to Charlie Brown, of course, in monologue by rehearsing Luke chapter 2 from the Bible. I think that if we think about the state of our culture, we would agree that many things have changed since a Charlie Brown Christmas first aired. But I would submit to you that some things have not changed. Christmas is still commercialized, and its true meaning is still found in the Bible. I think that Matthew shows us three ways Christmas is truly meaningful in this text that we will look at and that I've just read to you this evening. Tonight we will see that Christmas is an interruption, Christmas is an incarnation, and Christmas is an invitation. So first, Christmas is an interruption. Consider the experience of Joseph and Mary. Look again what Matthew says in verse 18. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. Now, Matthew and Luke both record accounts of Jesus' conception and birth. Matthew's account is recorded from the perspective of Joseph, whereas Luke's account is recorded from the perspective of Mary. And Matthew and Luke omit certain like marital customs from their narratives because those customs would have been assumed by their original audiences, but they're not assumed today. So, for example, it was customary in ancient Jewish culture to marry young. And so Joseph and Mary were probably just teenagers. And marriages at that time involved two basic stages, the betrothal and then the wedding. Matthew tells us that these events took place when Mary had been betrothed to Joseph. In this betrothal stage, which could typically last up to a year, Joseph and Mary would have entered into a legally binding uh, marital agreement, a prenuptial agreement before witnesses, and that agreement would have only been broken by a process of formal divorce. This agreement that they entered into would have been sealed with a dowry and gifts between the families and a special groom's gift from Joseph to Mary. During this betrothal stage, Joseph would have been working hard. He would have been um, busy securing their home and getting all of their kind of material and financial affairs in order. And Mary would have remained living with her family up until the wedding ceremony. During the betrothal, the couple would have been referring to each other as husband and wife, because legally they were husband and wife. Just look at how Matthew refers to Joseph in verse 19, her husband, Joseph. However, they would have not consummated their marriage until after the coming wedding ceremony. So in the case of Joseph and Mary, the second stage of the marriage process hadn't yet taken place. Look again with me at verse 18. Matthew says, before they came together, 
she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. Now, while it was customary at that time for marriages to be arranged, it's also the case that uh, we can look into the Old Testament and we can see texts like Ruth and Proverbs and Song of Solomon that hold up the, the gifts that God has given to us of love and of romance. And so they would have rightly understood love and romance and everything that comes with them is precious gifts from God. So it's safe for us to assume that even though their marriage was arranged, this is a young couple who are probably growing more and more in love and who are undoubtedly anticipating the time when they would be able to fully express and fully experience that growing love. So here's the picture I'm trying to paint for you. Joseph and Mary are set. Their new life is right in front of them. They can almost reach out and touch it. They're just about to join together and to enjoy life and to start a family of their own. Can you imagine their anticipation and excitement? Can you imagine all of their hopes and all of their dreams. And imagine all of it interrupted. First, think of how Mary's life is interrupted. We know from Luke's gospel that during this betrothal, the angel Gabriel had appeared to Mary in a dream, and the angel Gabriel reveals to her that God has a plan to supernaturally conceive in her womb a a, a holy child. Angel Gabriel also tells her that her relative Elizabeth has conceived in her old age and is at that point six months pregnant, right? They couldn't like text or tweet back then. Now, at hearing this news from Gabriel, imagine what Mary is thinking. She's betrothed, but she's soon going to be with child. It is not the biological offspring of Joseph. Who is going to believe her? What will Joseph think? What will her family and friends think? How quickly will word get around Nazareth? And in a culture at that time where both personal and also family identity are defined largely in terms of honor and shame, what will become of her? What will become of her family? How can this possibly all work out Well, from Mary's limited human perspective, it won't. It can't. But the last thing Gabriel says to Mary is nothing will be impossible with God. When God interrupts, God makes a way. So Luke says that immediately after this angelic visitation, Mary arose and she went with haste to visit Elizabeth, where she stayed with Elizabeth about three months before returning to Nazareth. Now, here is what I don't want us to miss in this account. By the time Mary uh, returns and we get to these events that are narrated by Matthew in our text today, Mary has returned to Joseph from her trip approximately four months pregnant. Now consider how Joseph's life is interrupted. Remember, Matthew is recording this account from the perspective of Joseph. He simply says... Mary was found to be with child. Well, who found her? Presumably Joseph. And then all of Joseph's family. 
and all of Mary's family, and then all of Nazareth. Now let's put ourselves in Joseph's place for just a moment. Mary leaves on a trip to visit family, right? Joseph is working. He's taking care of business for three to four months to get their affairs in order, waiting for, anticipating, looking forward to their wedding ceremony. Mary returns visibly pregnant. Can you imagine how crushed Joseph is? He's about to marry the woman that he loves. He's been making all the preparations. I wonder how that first conversation went. Mary to Joseph. Joseph, my love, my husband, I have news to share with you. Yeah, no kidding. As you can see, I'm pregnant, but I need you to understand. The angel Gabriel appeared to me. I've conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit. I am carrying the Holy Son of God in my womb. And Joseph just has to be like, what? I mean, in a history of explanations given for unanticipated situations like that, that has to rank at the top of the most unbelievable, literally, explanations ever given. And so all Joseph can reasonably conclude is that Mary has returned to him in adulteress. And now Joseph faces this brutal dilemma because on the one hand, if Joseph marries her, then everyone will assume that he is the one who got her pregnant before she left town or that Mary got pregnant by somebody else, but he's going to marry her anyways. Either way, they'll be shamed, they'll be excluded, and they'll be rejected socially. On the other hand, if Joseph divorces her, He preserves his honor and the reputation of his family, but Mary and her family are subjected to widespread community disgrace. No one will ever marry her. Her family will likely disown her, and she and this child, which has appeared out of nowhere, will be alone. There's no good option. So Matthew says, and her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. Mary's life interrupted by Jesus. Joseph's life interrupted by Jesus. And just when Joseph is tempted to divorce, God intervenes. Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife. And just when Mary is tempted to despair, God provides hope. Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. The word here that's translated favor, this favor that God is showing to Mary is the same word in our Bibles that's translated grace. What is grace? Grace is God's unmerited, his undeserved, his unearned kindness to us. So the angel is saying that Christ's coming to Joseph and Mary was an interruption that at first seemed rude, at first it seemed unwelcome, but it is an interruption which would eventually prove to be the greatest act of God's kindness, his unearned grace that Joseph and Mary could have ever known. 
Friends, this news of Christ's coming interrupts our lives just as it interrupted their lives. Jesus has also come down to take on human flesh to interrupt us. Jesus crashes into our lives and sometimes it's messy. Sometimes it's costly to follow him. But when Jesus crashes into our lives, he comes bringing God's grace with him. And this is the beginning of the meaning of Christmas. Christmas is an interruption of grace. But next, Christmas is an incarnation. The word incarnation simply means in flesh. An incarnation denotes the act whereby the eternal son of the triune God who has existed eternally as father, son, and spirit took upon himself an additional nature, a human nature. He didn't stop being God to become man. He became man also. Look at verse 20. But as Joseph considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. Friends, this is the miracle of Christmas. Jesus was supernaturally conceived of a virgin, and he was eventually born of a virgin. Through this mysterious but powerful work of the Holy Spirit, his father was God, and his mother was the fully human woman, Mary. And so now being fully God, Jesus was able to pay the eternal penalty for our sins, which finite humanity, which you and I can't pay unless we pay it forever. And being fully human, Jesus could be our acceptable representative and our substitutionary sacrifice. So Christmas, friends, it is supernatural. Christmas is inescapably supernatural. Now I want to call a time out here. And I want to point out how Christmas, as a supernatural event, speaks hope into our present-day culture, which has largely embraced an anti-supernatural bias. Let me read a quote to you by a modern-day secular thinker named Richard Dawkins. Some of you have read his work. And the following statement really concisely expresses the last 100 years of secular thought. Dawkins writes, in a universe of blind physical forces and genetic replication, some people are going to get hurt, other people are going to get lucky, and you won't find any rhyme or reason in it, nor any justice. The universe we observe has precisely the properties we should expect if there is, at bottom, no design, no purpose, no evil, and no good, nothing but blind, pitiless, indifference. But I submit to you, friends, that Christmas is God's demonstration that this hopeless perspective is wrong. It is wrong. In contrast to the blind, pitiless indifference of the modern naturalistic worldview, Christmas shines as hope into the darkness of our fragile, broken human experience. The incarnation means that we do not inhabit a universe which has no rhyme or reason in it, nor any justice. It means the exact opposite. The incarnation means that we exist in a created order where there is design, 
where there is purpose, where there are objective good and evil, and where our creator, who is personally invested, has personally stepped into human history as one of us to set right everything which human sin has caused to go so horribly, terribly wrong. It also happens to be the case that our universe exhibits the properties of a universe that is corrupted and fallen in sin. And so the incarnation screams out that the apparent blind, pitiless indifference of the universe is being righted by our creator. The message of Christmas is not that the universe is out of control, but that God is in control. Look at how Matthew quotes Isaiah in verses 22 through 23. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. Over and over in his gospel, Matthew uses those words. All this took place to fulfill. All this took place to fulfill. And that is Matthew's way throughout his gospel text of reaching back into the Old Testament, the historic text of Israel, and pulling out all these scriptures which precede Jesus by hundreds and in some cases thousands of years and holding them up for his readers 2,000 years ago and by extension us today and screaming with excitement, guys, look at this. Do you see this right here? This is Jesus. This is Jesus. Let me put it down. Let me pick up another one. Look, this is Jesus. This is him. Let me put it down. Let me pick up another one. This is Jesus. What is the probability of one of those being fulfilled, let alone 40 of them? In Matthew's gospel, what he's saying when he does that is that God is in control of human history. He is bringing it to his prescribed end. His plan of redemption is working itself out. So here, Matthew quotes the prophet Isaiah who wrote 700 years, seven centuries before the birth of Jesus. And Matthew identifies Jesus as this promised Emmanuel. This is... Matthew's way of showing us that the God who speaks promises is also the God who keeps promises and that all of his kept promises are located visibly and tangibly and physically in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Seven centuries earlier, God had promised through Isaiah to one day in some sense be with his people. And Matthew is showing us that this Emmanuel promise does not mean that God will be with his people merely in terms of protecting them or guiding them or helping them because he had done that in their history and he continues to do that today. But rather, Matthew is showing us that Emmanuel means that God has literally and physically come to be with his people as one of those people. And so if the incarnation the virgin conception is the miracle of Christmas, then Emmanuel is the mystery of Christmas. The God who is sovereign and in control of history is now the God who is with us in that same history. This understanding of Jesus as incarnate Emmanuel, incarnate Emmanuel, is the historic confession of the Christian faith. We can go back to the Council of Nicaea, in AD 325. 
And modern, modern authors like Dan Brown, who wrote that nonsense Da Vinci Code, have kind of usurped this gathering to say that all these people met because they wanted to, you know, cherry pick which books were in the Bible. Nicaea had nothing to do with that. All these Christian men who had been entrusted with the scriptures and the traditions of historic Orthodox Christianity convened because a new thing, a new belief had emerged, a new heresy, Arianism, which was attacking the most precious doctrine of the deity of Christ. It emerged. And so all these men from around the ancient world convened. And they refuted that error, that heresy. They defended the deity of Jesus. And they wrote these things. We believe in one Lord, Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, begotten from the Father before all ages, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, of the same essence as the Father. Through him all things were made. For us and our salvation, he came down from heaven. He became incarnate by the Holy Spirit and the Virgin Mary. And he was made human. He was crucified under Pontius Pilate. He suffered and was buried. The third day he rose again according to the scriptures. He ascended to heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again with glory to judge the living and the dead. His kingdom will never end. Friends, these people were near in proximity to the original events. They had been handed down to them. And for the first three centuries of the Christian church, people bled and died to hold to these confessions. Many people die for what they believe to be true. Not many people die for what they know to be false. All these people were in the position to confirm the truth or falsity of the Christian claim, of the claim of the incarnation. Jesus is God. Jesus is human. And Jesus is with us. Christmas is an incarnation. But last, Christmas is an invitation. If you've been paying attention to the verses that we've been looking at, you will notice that I have skipped over verse 21. In that verse, the angel also said to Joseph, she, Mary, will bear a son. And you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. How many of you have kids? I have two. They're right down there. The names I chose for my children have special meaning. How many of you would agree that names have significance? Well, that was even more the case for that culture then than it is for us today. And in that culture, two factors were always important when naming your children. First of all, who named you was important because who named you also had authority over you. Secondly, what they named you was important because what you were named conveyed or cemented your purpose in life. Names had tremendous significance. So traditionally, it was the father's responsibility and he reserved the authority to name the child. And so naming the child, the father would also establish his legal paternity. But here, the name of God's son is determined by his heavenly father. You shall call his name Jesus. So in giving the name, God the father reveals his purpose for his incarnate son. But in delegating the giving of the name at a human level to, 
of Jesus to Joseph, God the Father also allows for Jesus' legal human paternity to be established. Uh, the, the, the child will be Joseph's legal earthly heir. Notice the angel addressed Joseph as Joseph, son of David. Matthew records this this way because it's his way of emphasizing to the world that Joseph's legal heir is also David's legal heir, thereby establishing Jesus as the successor to David's messianic throne. And so in this text, we see one title in two names for the child. This child is identified as the Christ because he is the Messiah to rightfully inherit David's throne forever. That's Matthew's way of saying, this child, this is the one. He is going to be the king of kings. This child is called Emmanuel because he is God in human flesh. And finally, this child is named Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. That is his purpose. That is his mission. That is his prerogative. The name Jesus is a translation of the Hebrew name Joshua or Yeshua, meaning Yah or Yahweh saves. The name Emmanuel specifies who he is, God with us. The name Jesus specifies what he does, God saves. So the name Jesus shows us that the purpose of his coming down from heaven, the purpose of his coming is our saving. Friends, contrary to what skeptics and secular thinkers who are not educated on the subject will say today, Jesus did not come primarily to be a good example, though he certainly was that. Jesus did not come primarily to be a wise sage, though he certainly was that. Friends, Jesus came to set the captives free. Jesus came to remove the shackles of sin and our enslavement to it. He came to remove our burdens of sin off of our backs. He came to save his people from their sins. And so, friends, we're, we're now at the point tonight, we've done the sufficient legwork to where now we can take all these pieces and we can put together what Christmas has really all about here's what Christmas is all about Charlie Brown Christmas is about God in his goodness and in his mercy sending forth his son at the appointed time who is not conceived by ordinary means but who is conceived by a virgin by the power and work of the Holy Spirit. Why does that virgin birth matter, friends? Because if he inherits a sinful nature, then he's born sinful just like the rest of us. But because he is not born sinful, he is born pure, spotless, unstained. He is clean. And that's why the angel said to Mary in Luke chapter 1, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called holy, holy son of God. He's holy. He's clean of sin. His soul is clean. His heart is clean. His life is clean. His record is clean. And he stays that way. He stays holy, perfectly sinless for his entire life. 
Think about this. Everywhere that you and I have failed, everywhere we have failed to trust God as he calls us to trust, where we have failed to believe God as he's called us to believe, to love God as he's called us to love, to live as God has called us to live. Everywhere you and I have failed, Jesus did not fail. He did not fail. Not once, not ever, not anywhere. Being the Holy One, Jesus obeyed God's law perfectly. And when he obeyed God's law perfectly, he did it on our behalf. He obeyed it so that his perfect obedience could be gifted to us. And here's the thing we need to see on Christmas. Christmas always and will forever cast a cross-shaped shadow. We can draw a straight line from the manger to the cross. The bloody baby laying in his manger became the bloody man nailed to his cross. That is the purpose for which he came. And on that cross, God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us. He didn't just give him our sins. He made him our sins. All of us, every single one in here, no one is exempt. All of us, like sheep, have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And yet the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. And Jesus saves us from our sin because God imputes it to him. He puts it on him. Think about your own sinfulness. If you're not a Christian, if these things are new to you, I just want to invite you gently right now to consider this with an open mind, with an open heart. Think about your own sinfulness. Think about all the things that you've done in your life that a good God must punish because a good God is just and he is the one who determines what is right and is wrong. If he did not determine it, he would not be God. God took all your sinfulness. He took every sinful act, every heinous deed, every reprehensible thought. He took everything, all of your sinfulness, and he held it all against Jesus' hands and he nailed it to the cross. No other representative, no other substitute could be in that place for us. God's justice demands that our sins be paid for. Either we pay for them or someone pays for them for us. And being fully human, Jesus can rightfully die in our place, taking upon himself the burden of human sin. And yet being fully God, he can pay the eternal penalty for our sins and he can appease God's righteous wrath against human sin. Friends, he, he was born so that he could die. And he died, but then he was raised on the third day, scriptures say, for our justification. And what that means is that so those of us who are by nature unrighteous can be declared righteous by the Father. Our sin was laid on him. His righteousness is credited to us. And this, in this way, God is both just and he is the justifier of whoever would come to Jesus and put their trust in him and look to his finished work on the cross and say, yes, I need that. I trust that. My efforts are not good enough, but your efforts are. So that all those who put their hope in Christ will be welcomed by God, 
welcomed into his family. When we're saved, we're adopted by God into his family. And when he saves us and adopts us, he sends his Holy Spirit to transform us, to make us new. As some have said, he causes us to begin to bear the family resemblance. And Christ continues to work in us until we're not only saved from the penalty of our sins and not only rescued from the clutches of the power of sin, but we're also in the end delivered completely from the presence of sin when we will dwell sinless, sinlessly with the Holy One in a renewed and restored cosmos, a restored created order that no longer appears blind and pitiless and indifferent. That is the gospel of Christmas, my friends. And I would add to that this submission. Friends, Christmas is not for good people. Christmas is for sinners. Christmas begins with an interruption and it ends with an invitation. On Christmas, Jesus, tonight, Jesus invites all of us who are unworthy to come to him. On Christmas, Jesus, he holds out his arms and he stretches out his hands and he says, Are you dirty? Come to me. Are you weak? Come to me. Are you guilty? Bring your guilt to me. Are you hiding? Come to me. Are you hurting? Come to me. Are you unstable? Bring your instability to me. Are you unfaithful? I will take you. Do you need healing? Come to me. Do you need cleansing? Come to me. Do you need forgiving? Oh, come all you unfaithful. Come to me is Jesus' invitation to us on Christmas. And friends, there is not a soul here tonight that he would turn away. If you see your need for this Jesus that I declare to you, then turn to him tonight. Let's conclude. Friends, I want to point out that Matthew did not begin his account with the words a long time ago in a galaxy far, far away. He did not begin his account with the words once upon a time. I think that the most overlooked words of this passage are the words that Matthew does begin with. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. It took place. Do you see those words? Then again in verse 22, all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken. Over and over, it took place. It took place. It took place. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John each write gospel accounts. And today, historians of the New Testament understand their accounts to belong to an ancient genre of historical biography. That is to say that there was a genre reserved for mythical literature, and these do not fit that genre. Rather, they fit the genre, the ancient genre, written things, written things that really happened. And so recording things that he proposes really happened, Matthew closes his account of the birth narrative this way. 
When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son. And he called his name Jesus. Joseph did as the Lord commanded him. Mary gave birth to a son. This is my point, friends. Christianity is true. Christmas happened. Jesus is real. Many people will rehearse a myth tonight that they will find some imaginary meaning in and they will rehearse something that they know to be false. They'll say something like this to their children. Kids, Santa is coming to town. He's been keeping his list. He's been checking it twice. Now consider the irony as we juxtapose what our culture celebrates as myth with what Matthew conveys as truth. Santa comes with things for those who claim to be good. Jesus comes bringing himself and forgiveness for those who know that they need it. Which person do you need this Christmas? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word where you've disclosed yourself and your purposes and your plan of redemption from creation to new creation and where we see and meet your son, the eternal son who took upon himself human flesh, condescended, came down to us, lived perfectly where we could not, went to the cross where we should have, Exhausted your wrath so that we could be pardoned. You made him sin so that you could make us righteousness. And we thank you for that work. And we remember that Christmas. And we respond now to that great work you have done in interrupting in incarnation, Lord, and in invitation at Christmas. We respond to that now in worship. Amen. On behalf of the Hope Chapel family, I'd like to thank you for tuning in to the sermon podcast. If you would like to know more about our church, you can visit www.hopechapel.org.